we are still in the book of Revelation. We are really, really near the end now, so we're, we're in the last, last little push to home. So, we're going to spend this week in chapter 1 and uh, then have a little break next week and then coming back to uh, the last chapter, probably the week after, after that. Um, so, if you if you've got Bibles with you, really encourage you to turn to them and follow them. We're going to just be working through chapter 21 um, this morning, so just open your Bibles, just follow through, and we'll read it as we, as we go along. I think when we come to something like Revelation, sort of the idea of forever, this sort of concept of what forever is, is something that people tend to well, actually, don't tend to think very much about during the busyness of everyday life. It's something that doesn't really enter our minds very often, but this is exactly where the Bible finishes in these last two chapters of Revelation. And if you are a Christian here this morning, this is exactly where you're heading. In fact, all of creation is waiting, and it's longing for that moment and for that day. This is Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subject to the frustrations, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonships, the redemption of our bodies. Do you ever feel something of that groaning? your Holy Spirit within you to feel groaning, just looking, waiting with the anticipation of what is to come. Well, as we get into Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 2, John describes something of what eternity is going to be like. He says this, verse 1, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth.'" For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, it may surprise you to know that God's plan for this present physical universe is that it's going to be renewed. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to be thrown away, but it's going to be restored. Yes, the decay, yes, the death is going to pass away, but this world as we see it is going to be made renewed, completely new. In fact, just in the same way that our bodies are going to be made, are going to be raised up to new life, in other words, we're going to still have these same bodies. In other words, you will still be able to recognize me in heaven. I'm going to look something like this. Now, it, it's starting to get a little bit worn already, admittedly, you know, it, it, and it's, it's probably not going to get any better in this life, but one day, one day, all of the decay, all of the blemishes, gone made perfect. In fact, this 
whole universe, as you just look around at it, will be made and restored completely at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, too often we have this idea that the Christian's eternal destiny is that we're going to go to heaven and we are going to float around on some clouds forever. Can you think of anything worse, really? Like just nothingness? Well, listen, God has got so much bigger plans and so much greater plans than all of this. Let's keep reading verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among His people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And this new world is inhabited with God's people In fact, those who have repented of their sins, who've put their trust and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be there. Now, right back at the very beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Exodus 29, verse 45, we read what God had promised to Israel, to the people of God. It says, "'Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God.'" Here in Revelation chapter 21, we see the ultimate fulfillment to what God had promised to the Old Testament people. Now, we get a taste of that now as we worship, as we spend time in God's presence. We get something of a glimpse of what, is, what, what it is to be the people of God, but one day we are going to know in completeness, in absolute fullness, what it really means to be God's holy people. And heaven will be a place that is filled with worship, a place that is productive. We're not just doing nothing. It's a place of productiveness, a place that is perfect and enjoyable and in the presence of God forever. More details come in verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Listen, this is a radically new world. There are some dramatic things missing from this world. Do you notice back in verse 1 when we read what's missing from the renewed world? Have a little look. See what's missing there from the world? Again, sea, yeah. There's no longer any sea. There will be water, I believe, but, but no sea. Now, sea in the Bible is a picture of forces that threaten God's people, and this ties in with what we read here in verse 4 as well, because anything that threatens you, that causes fear, that causes upset, that, that causes stress, gone. And those problems that you're facing at the moment, they're gone. Those, those things that, keep, that kept you awake last night, the, the things that you're worrying about, gone. All gone. Sickness, gone. Death, gone. Pain, gone. No more goodbyes in heaven. Do you get the picture? This truly is something to be excited about, something that we should be looking for, something that we should 
we want to be there, don't we? Verse 5 goes on. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Listen, only Jesus can say that. Trustworthy and true. It's, it's his name. It's who he is. It's his character. But it's also what comes out of his mouth. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Listen, the one who created this universe, the one who brought everything into existence is the one who will be there at the very end as well. In fact, the one who will reign for all of eternity. Only He can say, it is done. Because only He has got the authority to do such a thing. goes on, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life, and those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be confined to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Have you ever gone, done any online shopping? Most of us have by this stage. It's pretty much how we, we tend to buy things, isn't it? But if you go online and you, you, you put your details in, before you get to the checkout, what you will find, something will pop up on the screen to say, terms and conditions apply. And you've got to tick a little box to say you've read the terms and conditions. We all do, of course, don't we? Listen, the same thing is true when it comes to our eternal future that God has promised us in the gospel. And so often as we read in the Bible, and we see it particularly here in the book of Revelation, and certainly in these few verses, very often there is a promise from God followed by a warning. This sort of carrot and stick approach, this promise, but then there's also a warning to take heed of as well. First of all, the promise. The one on the throne gives John some wonderful assurances in these verses. He says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. This, again, reminder of the prophetic words of Isaiah chapter 55, but actually also, I'm sure you're also remembering what Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, when he spoke to her, she asked for water. He says, says the water I give you will mean that you will never thirst again. And the citizen of heaven, well, they are satisfied people because there's a free and there is an abundant living water for all. But there's also a condition that comes with that. It is for those who are victorious. This is for those who overcome. After the great Chicago fire of 1871, the evangelist D.L. Moody um, went back to his house. He found it completely burnt down. It was in ruins. A friend came to Moody and said, I hear you've lost everything. Well, Moody replied, you understand wrong. I've got a great deal more left than I have lost. What do you mean? Asked the inquisitive friend. I didn't know you were, you were rich. Moody opened his Bible and he read what we've just read. Revelation 21 verse 7. 
those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And Moody understood something about the value of things. He understood that what he had on this earth, no matter how much it was, it was absolutely nothing compared to the value of heaven, to the glories that God has got in store for each person who puts their hope, who puts their trust in Him, who lives in victory because of Him. And listen, we should be living with one eye on eternity. Don't forget about it. Keep an eye on eternity because that will change the way you view the here and now it will also help you to get everything into its right, right perspective here on earth. Then the warning comes. It says, those who don't overcome, the news is bleak. And there are eight categories mentioned here, eight different people mentioned here in verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars. And if you remember back to the early chapters in chapter 2 and chapter 3, when we talked about the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, they ended up with a salvation being promised to those who overcome. And this list here in 21 verse it isn't just some sort of random list. In fact, it picks up on the sins that were plaguing those churches and actually was in danger of, making, of, of keeping them from overcoming. So, God is urging the church in Smyrna, it said to it, not to fear opposition. The cowardly are those who refuse to stand up for Christ, who, who prove to be faithless but also the sexually immoral, the idolaters. This sort of thing was infiltrating and infecting the church. It was causing and bringing in false teaching. Also, the liars, it says, will end up in the lake of fire. Does that mean if we say something that is not true, that we are going to end up with um, condemned for all of eternity? Well, 1 John 2.4 is probably helpful in the definition of what it is to be a liar. I want to first of all start in verse 1, because again we see this promise followed by a warning. Verse 1 says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of this world. Listen, in this life there's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We don't live as condemned people. We live, we live as people who've been saved by God's grace. Listen, Jesus is in heaven right now, and He's interceding before the Father on your behalf. But we must come in repentant hearts. We must come and ask for forgiveness. We must come to Him. This is the wonder of the gospel. It goes on, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So, a liar is someone who says that they know, they follow, they love Jesus Christ, but by the way in which they live, by the things that they say, by what they do, it's proved not to be true. And listen, if you, someone is pretending to be a follower, they will not 
get into heaven. It's only those who have been truly saved through Jesus Christ. It's only those who have come with a true repentant heart by faith to Him. If you've been saved by Jesus, however, you are filled with His Spirit, and there will be proof of that by the way in which you live out your life. You will live in victory. You will live as an overcomer. doesn't mean that we're going to live with perfection in our lives. Great if we could, but we struggle, we battle with sin on a daily basis, or if that, that's just me, but we do. But we live in victory because of God's grace, because of His love that's been poured into our hearts through Jesus Christ. So when we read these verses about this new world and about this lake of fire, our first instinct made to be fearful for our loved ones who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And that is good and that is right. Listen, we need to be those who are telling our friends, our family about Jesus, to be praying for them to, so that they would know the fullness of Christ, so that they would be able to enter into all that God has got, in, got for us. But I want you to notice that John is here first and foremost. He's writing to and he's warning Christians. In other words, you need to hear this warning for yourself. So ask the question, are there things in my life that I need to repent of? What's the Holy Spirit prompting me to stop doing? Perhaps those eight things that we, we mentioned and read already, those eight categories. Is there something there that God, even as we read them, was the Holy Spirit just prompting us and saying, you know what, I need to, I need to sort this out with my, within my life. I need to deal with some stuff here. Or perhaps there's things that we need to start doing today. And John is recording this, so this sort of carrot and stick approach to these eternal futures will keep us away from compromise and will keep us going in obedient faith so that we would overcome, that we would inherit the promised blessing. Verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain high, great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with seven, sorry, with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod, and he found it to be 12,000 strata in length, and as wide and as high as it was long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was 144 cubic thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. 
The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, agate. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, ruby. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, turquoise. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amorith. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each gate made from a single pearl. The great streets of the city was of gold as transparent as glass. Can you get a picture of that? Just the sheer opulence and just wonder of, of such a scene. The details of this city are just so magnificent, so incredible. If you were a state agent, a property expert, you just wouldn't know how to put a value in this place. You wouldn't have a clue where to start. Now, property experts are very fond of saying that the three most important factors that, the, that determine a desirability of a, of a property is location, location, location. And the future of God's people are in the ultimate location, in the New Jerusalem. And the whole of the Scripture, the whole of Bible, the whole of this world began in a garden, and one day it will end in a city. And here we get John to give us a guided tour of it. So some things about this city, first of all. Perhaps the most striking and the first thing about this city that we notice is that it is shining with the glory of God. It's already come through in our worship already. The city is shining with the glory of God, and there will be just something of an intensity, something of a brightness to this place that's hard to imagine and pretty much impossible to describe. Perhaps the, the very best thing that we love about a beautiful sunny day, but times by infinity. I don't know. How, how do you begin to put words to something like this? It also has some great high walls. This city is safe and secure, and unusually when the dimensions of this city are measured, it is completely square. It's equal on both sides, indicating the, the perfection of God's eternal city. Nothing is out of order or out of balance in this place. And then look what it's made from. The walls made of jasper. And the city itself is pure gold, as pure as glass. The twelve gates are twelve pearls, each gate made from a single pearl. The great streets of this city gold, as pure, as transparent glass. Listen, even the building's foundations are just amazing. Normally underground, normally unseen, they, are, they were not only visible, but they are also, also beautifully garnished with precious stones, each separate foundation made from its own jewel, and the blending of these colors must have, will be absolutely magnificent as God's light radiates and shines through them. In the book of Exodus, there was a garment made for the high priest, for Aaron. On that garment were twelve precious stones on it. 
And those stones were a reminder to him as he encountered the presence of God that he represented the tribes of Israel, the people of God. These same jewels are mentioned here. And God's precious people are now in His presence, not on a jacket or on a garment made by a priest, but they are fully part of the city of God. This is truly and just awe-inspiring to think that we could belong to Christ and actually how precious we are to Him. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, we read about Solomon's temple and about the most holy place that he built. Now, listen, Solomon's temple was probably the most magnificent building that ever existed upon this earth. He had really spent as much as he could. He had a huge amount of wealth to pour into this incredible, incredible temple. In verse 20, we read, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, 20 high, he overlaid the outside with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar of cedar. And being both gold and also square, it is a mini replica of the new Jerusalem. But in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the presence of God, into this most holy place, and only could do it once a year. This was a place of utter holiness and purity. However, in the holy city, all God's people will live with God all of the time and forever. Listen, the people of the Old Testament could never possibly have dreamed of what this could be like. We struggle even with what John gives us here, but by faith it tells us that they longed for it. Abraham longed for it by faith. Hebrews 11 verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose author and builder is God. And then in verse 13 it goes on and tells us how Abraham, how Isaac, how Jacob, all of these people were still looking, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners, that they were strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, for a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. This world is not our home. Our home is in the new Jerusalem. Our home is in the new heaven and the new earth. But listen, we do integrate into this world. We're part of what goes on within this place, but we should have this longing within us as we look forward. This is what God has promised for us. This is the hope that we have in and through Christ. It should be something that gets us excited just as it got Abraham excited, just as he was longing for this future, this heavenly country. So should we. In the action film Collateral, if you've seen it, there's a scene there of a cab driver who gives a lift to a lawyer. And she asks him, when was the last time you took a break? And she says, or sorry, he says, I go on vacation all of the time. How often, she says. He takes a postcard out with a photograph of an idyllic island on it, and he says, a dozen times a day, my favorite spot. It's my own personal getaway. 
when things get too heavy for me, I just take five minutes out, and I just go there. Listen, there's a sense in which as Christians, we should never be too long before we're thinking of the promise that God has got for us in heaven. We should have one eye on eternity. Listen, this is the hope that we have. And we don't talk a lot about heaven, do we? We we just get caught up in the things of this world and things of life. But this is the promise. Listen, it changes our view of now when we have the right view of what eternity is going to look like. So let's get excited about it. Let's get excited about it. Some folks say, well, this is simply escapism. But listen, for the Christian, this is not escapism because this is a reality. The heavenly city is a simple, is simply a future reality. The second aspect of this city is not only the looking off it, but also this is unusual because this is a city bride. Do you notice that? It's the city bride. Part of what should motivate us to keep going in our faith is not only just seeing what one day, where one day we're going to be living, but also what one day we will be like. And eternity is not just, is not just about God's new place, but about God's new people, the future bride. And this eternal city is not only the home of the bride, it is the bride. Do you get that? It's not just the home, it actually is the bride. See, a city is not a building, it is people. And this is the picture that God paints, the picture of the bride, which is the church, this beautifully dressed wife of the Lamb that we read about in verse 2. So we need to bear in mind that as individuals, we don't ourselves just become the bride of Christ. God's people as a whole are and our relationship with Christ, the relationship between Christ and the church is so unique. It is the ultimate, closest, most personal relationship. Listen, this is going to be glorious, so glorious. The bride of Christ displayed in all its wonder and so precious to Jesus. But if you remember back to chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, it describes a very, very different type of woman. It describes a prostitute. And this prostitute was a picture of the world in all its ugly rejection of God. And the contrast with the church here on the last day could not be, could not be greater. A cheap whore versus a beautiful, pure bride but also what a contrast as well between what the church is like now and what it will be like one day. You see, there are many problems that were plaguing the early first century church, and those same issues are still a challenge to to most churches today. And those eight categories that we mentioned back in verse 8, those list of people, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars. These are the sort of things that were challenging the early church. Listen, those sort of things still challenge the church today, the issues that we struggle with, the sins that we battle against. And there seems to be such a huge gap between the church as it is now and what the church one day will become, and raises the question, how on earth are we going to bridge such a gap? In Ephesians 5, Verse 25, Paul writes to married couples, 
and he gives us a clue to the answer to how the church will bridge the gap. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Listen, Jesus Christ is the ultimate husband. He loves His bride. In fact, He gave His life for her. He gave His life for us to make us holy and to make us clean. It's only by grace that we can be saved. It's only by God's grace that we can be made holy and pure. So how do we bridge that gap? We don't. But it's been made possible because Jesus Christ has made it possible. And we live in this time or rather this tension between the now and the not yet. Listen, when you come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are justified. The Bible says we are made, it's made as if we have, we have never sinned. We're made right with God. Here we stand. If you're a Christian, you are absolutely right with God. You are pure and blameless. That's how God sees you, because His blood has dealt with all of your sins past, present, and future. That is your identity right now. However, we're still struggling with sins, are we not? There's still a process going on within our lives. What we talk about is, is the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And these two things are going on, the now and the not yet. One day we will be made perfect, but not yet. Listen, this process of sanctification lasts a lifetime as we work, as we grow closer and more and more like Jesus Christ. But it also should be something that we are growing in as well. So, we're not there yet. In fact, in 1 John 3, verse 2 to 3, it reminds us that we are a work in progress, that we also have a wonderful hope to come as well, the now and the not yet. It says, dear friends, now we are the children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And this, and this promise is certain. We can say with absolute confidence that one day we will be like Jesus because we're not depending on our own abilities. We are depending on Jesus Christ. We're depending on the one who's paid the ultimate price for all of our sins. And because Jesus Christ has died on the cross, one day He will present the bride, He will present her to Himself as a, a spotless, pure bride. Listen, this should motivate us to purity to keep seeking after God with all that we have. It should change also the view we have of church. And this glorious future should motivate us to live faithfully, to live a godly life right now as individuals, but also as a church. So, pray for God's strength to enable you. Pray for strength to enable you not to become disillusioned with church as it is now, because you know what one day it is going to become. And we live in the now but we live with the hope of what will one day be. The third thing about this city, not only do we see something of the magnificence of it, not only do we discover it is the bride, in fact, it's us, but thirdly, John tells us what he doesn't see. Verse 22, 
I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. The glory of the God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of this earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, and there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In God's eternal city, what won't be there is just as important as what will be there. So as John continues his tour, he tells us what he doesn't see. There's no temple. In fact, there's no need for a temple. Nexus 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And this Old Testament temple this was a place where God would dwell among His people, where God would come near His people. But here in Revelation 21, there is no need for such a thing. No temple is necessary in the heavenly city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Second thing, there's no sun. Again, this is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 to 20. It says, the sun will no longer be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. And God's glory will be like this sun. Listen, He truly is the light of this world. He is the light of this universe. In fact, no darkness can exist within His presence, which takes us to the third thing, no night. There will be no darkness in this new city. In ancient cities, the gates would be shut at nighttime, but not in this new one. It is not necessary. This city is secure. It is safe. God's presence is there. God's light is shining there all of the time and forever. We also read in John 3 verse 19 that darkness and night in the Bible often symbolizes evil. So the fact that there is no night here is significant because this is a place without sin, without evil. Fourth thing, no impurities. Nothing and no one impure can enter this city, and only those who follow Jesus, who have put their life and put their trust in Him, will live in this city. Only those who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And your name is written there when you've returned from your sins and you've come to Jesus Christ and put your hope and put your trust in Him Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other. It's so important that you know Him. It's so important that you've made things right with Him. And this is not about you trying harder or think, if I just do things a little bit better. No, you come to Jesus Christ. He's done it for you already. It's been dealt with on the cross, but you need to come. You need to repent. You need to turn to him. And for those who have done, we are heading to a world in which God will live with us. 
and we will have direct and we will have unhindered access to Him all of the time. A world in which His glory will shine on us as the sun does now. A world in which there is no evil or danger. A world in which there is no more sin or opposition. This is the glorious future which God has promised and prepared for His people, and that includes you, if you follow the Lamb until He either comes back again or He calls you home. My friends, this is our hope. This is the wonder of what God has prepared for each and every one who puts their hope and their trust in Him. But again, I've got to ask, do you know Him? That's the question. Do you know Him? If you don't, today is the day to make a difference, to put your trust in Jesus, to know with absolute certainty that your destination is heaven. Listen, He is your hope for now, but also forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the glimpses that You give us of this eternal city. And Lord, we only can see in part. Lord, and we, we, Lord words fail to really give you, um, to do justice, Lord, to, to, what's, um, to what You've prepared for us. But Lord, for what You've given us, for the glimpse that we've seen, Lord, we're so thankful. Lord, we thank You also, Lord, for the cross in which You died. Lord, that made this possible. Thank you, Lord, that you have dealt with our sins. So, Lord, we come to you and we pray, Lord, that you would just be among us now. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the sense of your, your glory just coming upon us as we gather together. But, Lord, we look to you and we keep looking to you. So, Lord, keep us strong. Keep us passionate. Keep us excited, Lord, about you and about our future hope. And, Lord, we say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for all that you have done for us and all that you continue to do for us. We give you glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen.